Father, we turn to your word now and ask that you might comfort us as we think about sin and the great offense against you that it is. Help us not to push it aside, but to see our great need. And would you once again point us to Jesus as our Savior and King, the solution, the redemption, the salvation that we need. We love you, Lord. Come and speak to us by your word that we may love you more. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 30. Technically 31, but we're mostly in 32. I'll pick up reading the very last verse of chapter 31, and we'll read through verse 10 of chapter 32. I realize that's a little different from what you have printed and... uh, Well, you just make note of it and everything will be all right. Exodus 31, starting in 18. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he add his blessing to it. I need you to think about sin. I don't especially want you to, but you must. What's the worst sin that you can commit? 
you know, if, if we ask that very broadly and generally, maybe we would say, well, the unforgivable sin is unbelief. Maybe the worst sin. Maybe something from the, the beginning of the second table of the Ten Commandments. So uh, something in the murder category, or abortion. Maybe something in the adultery category, fornication or pornography. What's the worst sin that you've committed? Sometimes they're obvious, they're glaring, something rather obvious from our past the Lord has saved us from, depending on your background and who you used to be. Sometimes we feel lots of guilt and remorse. Sometimes we feel worse about so-called smaller sins. You know, the, the dullness of my heart plagues me. That coldness that persists even in the midst of the Christian life. Apathy, impatience toward God and what he's planning for us and giving to us. Think about sin. Exodus 32 tells us that it's time to talk about sin. Chapters 1 through 31, the word sin or some form of it happens ten times. Chapter 32, 33, and 34 sees it eleven times, just those three chapters. Moses, the Lord through him, tells us it's, it's time to talk about sin. In this passage, we've already seen it. We see how easy it is to rebel against God. And we see how much God hates sin. Since 24, chapter 24, the Lord has been instructing Moses in all the matters of his worship by the people of Israel. We might say that the Lord has been giving feet to the first and second commandments, right? He has commanded in the Ten Commandments, first and secondly, that they worship him alone and they worship him according to his prescription for them. And now, in these chapters that we've been going through, he has been giving all of the instructions for his worship. You worship only me, and here is all the detail you need in order to accomplish that task, the ordinances that you will put into practice, the furnishings that are necessary, and all the instructions and recipes that go along with it. He, he is declaring to them who he is that must be worshipped. We've talked about this, that, that the worship he prescribes preaches about who he is and what he's done. Right? It declares his character to the people as they come before him in these ways. He's declaring who he is who must be worshipped and also at the same time in all of these things, he has been declaring how he who must be worshipped must be worshipped. So 31 verse 18 that we read really sums it all up. And the Lord gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The, the God who speaks to his people has completed his worship instruction and has now committed it to writing and this he gives to Moses that he might go instruct the people. And it's with 31.18 on your mind. 
you can see the great irony that comes at the beginning of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. John Currid says that the antithesis and conflict between what, what has been said on the mountain and what is happening at the foot of the mountain could not be greater. The, the people probably could have looked up and seen the cloud and the fire and remembered that that's where Moses is. And yet they, they choose to navel gaze, looking down all the time, saying, as for this Moses, we don't know where he is. We don't know what's become of him. We must be so careful not to be judges over Israel. We are made of the same stuff that they are made of. And there is not as much distance between them and us as we think. Exodus 32 and 33 and And 34 should make you sad. They should make you grieve and mourn and wail. Because as we'll see, they ought to show you what's inside your own heart. These 10 verses of chapter 32 record in the first place an event one through six, this event with the heading, the golden calf. And, and then in seven through ten, the event is reported to Moses as news, right? God comes and says, hey, breaking news. This is what's going on down at the foot of the mountain that you're about to go and find out about. And we get God's comments along with the report. There in one through seven, starting, we see the golden calf recorded for us that the incident surrounding its creation. Moses has been with God for 40 days. We presume he's um, towards the end of those 40 days when, when these Israelites begin to rebel. Presumably they have at least been able to remember if they would choose to look up that God is still up there and Moses is still with him. They, they get antsy. They get impatient. They decide, you know what, Moses went up to get instructions for how we're to worship God, but, but we can figure this out. We, we can take care of this part of the relationship. And so they decide that they can devise up on their own a method for worship. And so they call upon their interim leader, Aaron, to come and execute their plan. And, and the language there in verse 1, where it says, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron it it, it, it should be translated more aggressively they forced themselves on him they pressured him into doing this now we're not giving Aaron an excuse he is clearly complicit in all that they seek to do here in this chapter and he doesn't make a good excuse for himself when we get to it the next time we're here 
they pressure him into this service. And so Moses, Aaron rather, says, fine. And then again, another translation point, in two, it's really, he sort of says, tear off the rings of gold that are in your ears. It's almost a violent act that he commands. Fine, if this is what you want, then you rip out those gold earrings that you have and we'll do something with them. It's probably not a solid golden calf. It's probably something like what they've been making for the tabernacles. Wooden frames with, with melted gold poured over the top so as to cast it in whatever shape the frame would have created. And the word calf is probably... Um, overused calf would have referred to in this context in this particular word just a, a young male bull not a, not a newborn bovine but, but something older and more mature something bigger and more substantial but what exactly is the golden bull to these people You see halfway through four. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This ought to stand out to you when you read it. How many gods brought Israel up out of Egypt? Not just one, but the one, the only, the true, the living God, the Lord, the Lord, brought the people out of Egypt. They're, they're, they're taking and they're, and they're staining the words that the Lord has given them. Back in the, in the, um, the, the precursor, the, the, um, the prelude to the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, how does he declare himself to them before he gives them the law? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so they create this golden bull and they say, these are our gods who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They're mocking him. They may not realize what they're doing. They're they're trying to to sort of stamp stamp God on top of their idolatry. Yes, yes, this is the God. We'll use some language that he's used with us before. It, It seems... That, that instead of the bull being just a representation of the Lord, Yahweh, as, as some people may interpret this text, it seems that even while that would have been bad enough on its own, the people are also intending to recognize another God or more gods. They were falling into polytheism. We might, we might be more specific and say syncretism. That is the joining to true worship, pagan rituals and, and superstitions. The bull was a very common idol in the pagan world at that time. They look around the world, they think Moses isn't coming back. I wonder if they really wanted him to. Let's take a bull from from this religion that seems like this is a good thing to worship and it's strong and mighty. And we'll just join it up with what we know about our God and we'll worship this. One commentator says it like this. He says, not only do the people request construction of an object that would serve as leader of the exodus and the wilderness journey, an object defined as gods and thus an idol that violates the second commandment, but they also identify the objects as gods and thus violate the first commandment. It's not only that they are worshiping God in a way he has not prescribed, 
it is that they are, they are worshiping something that is not God because they are worshiping something of their own creation, something from their own minds and from their own devices. It's an object of substitution. That's what the golden bull is. That they were unwilling to be patient. They were unwilling to wait for the Lord to, to extend to them instructions for the proper way of his worship. Do you realize, we've said it, do you see the great irony? Do you remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, all of the imagery that the Lord is commanding for them to use in worship? If they wanted to get their sensory um, desires met in worship, the Lord is about to provide it. Incense and oil and blood and, and, and garments and all of the furnishings in the building, everything would be clear in the imagery of the tabernacle complex. Everything they wanted would be provided for them, and yet they are so impatient that they decide that they'll take care of it on their own. If only they had waited it would not be inaccurate to say that the sin of Exodus 32 is impatience. It's a refusal to wait upon the Lord. So they demand from Aaron this physical object to which they could bow down and pay homage. And Whether it was meant to represent the Lord or whether it was meant to represent some other God is really inconsequential. Motier points it out very clearly when he writes, the people had exchanged the invisible God who had led them by his spoken word for a visible thing which could not speak. The God who speaks, the God who has come to us, is not a God who can be seen by human eyes. And, and the, the inclination of our sinful hearts is to adopt something that we can perceive. And the horrible nature of it is, is that whatever that is, is not something that can speak. For only God speaks in the way that God speaks. They had exchanged the invisible God who had led them by his spoken word for a visible thing which could not speak. And if we look back into the history of our church, you go back to the time of the Reformation. This is the great sin of Rome. Desiring the sensory above the spiritual. That their, their corruption of even just the sacraments. Of, of suggesting that, that regardless of the faith of the recipient, the Lord's Supper communicates some kind of grace regardless. That, that baptism communicates something just because of the physical water and then all of their additions to the sacraments making a total of seven that they, they show their cards and that they prefer sensory things over spiritual truth. They prefer, they prefer physical objects that have no words over the invisible God who has spoken to us in His Word. There is great foolishness in forsaking the Lord for idols. Psalm 115, or you could go to Isaiah 44 if you were in Sunday school this morning and read, read a similar passage. There's your homework, Isaiah 44. Listen to Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They, speaking of their idols, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It is foolishness to forsake the Lord for idols of of any kind. Whether they're of, of physical design or there's something that comes out of your mind or your heart. It may be another person in your life. It may be money. It may be things. It might be your status. The way other people think about you. It is foolish for us to forsake the Lord, seeking satisfaction in anything else. They will leave us always wanting more, for they have all of the appearance of a God, but no ability to do anything. It's foolish, but idolatry is also very common among men. You have no excuse, is essentially what I want you to understand. You, you can't walk away from Exodus 32 without realizing that you are an idolater. That, that, that it is the very nature of our sin to be idolatrous. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, the unbelieving... They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. It is common to man, apart from the grace of the Lord, it is common to man to be an idolater. If if their offense is offensive in and of itself, and it is, God's explanation of it to Moses simply compounds it. He reports to Moses what's going on down at the bottom of the mountain. First, there's really two aspects of this. First, the Lord, you see in his language, he, he, he distances himself from the people. He's showing in this language his, his anger over their sin. So far up to this point in his interactions with them, how has he spoken about them? My people. My people. And, and, and he was the one who, who brought them out of Egypt. But do you see in verse 7? Go down for, speaking to Moses, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. There's a distance. When he used to speak lovingly and intimately of these people, now, because of what they have done, now he has taken a step back. So it's what we read about in Isaiah 59. It's it's an example of when the Lord says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
There's a distance now between the Lord and his people. But also, then the Lord describes their sin. They have corrupted themselves. The word there means, means that they've ruined themselves, or they've perverted themselves, or they've spoiled themselves. Produce gone bad. They've corrupted themselves. They've, they've, they've turned aside. Don't miss the words. They're so significant. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. You know, it's, it's in Pilgrim's Progress, all those various characters that are walking down the path and they seek to jump the fence and take a shortcut or just jump the fence because there's good fruit on the other side or there's more fun to be had on the other side. They have quickly left the way that I commanded them. They worshipped and bowed down to a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. They have called it their gods who brought them out of Egypt. And the Lord sums it up there in verse 9. I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You may be familiar with that that phrase, stiff-necked people, from other parts of Scripture. This is the first time we see it in the Bible. It comes back several times over the course of the history of God's people as a way to speak about Israel's obstinacy and stubbornness. It's like a rebellious ox just refuses to turn himself in the direction his master desires. He will not go the way he's meant to go. And so also the people have quickly turned aside out of the way that God has commanded them. Out of the way that God is leading them. He distances himself and and he calls their sin what it is. He peers into their hearts and, and labels it for every drop of rebellion that it truly is. And as we consider this, Beloved, we need to see how prone we are to wander and how heinous indeed God sees our sin to be. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. Verse 8, they, they turned aside quickly. One commentator called this their the rapid descent into idolatry. It's just like it just happened all at one time. It reminds you of, of what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians in the first chapter where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Later on at the beginning of chapter 3, he would call them, O foolish Galatians, and ask them, Who has bewitched you? Indeed. We dare not think that they descended so quickly, so suddenly. Friends, do you stay close to sin? Or do you seek to get away from it? Do you you believe that you are strong enough to entertain the world in your heart and still yet somehow maintain fidelity to God? It's so common in the church today to think that we can be like the world but still love God. That's not the way it works. That's not the way God's designed us. Do you, do you stick close to God? Do you stick close to his word? 
Often we turn aside quickly because we are already living too close to sin to begin with. We're all, if you're always just but a step away from sin, it becomes so much easier to get there. There was too much of Egypt still in their hearts, you see. And so when the time came and the temptation arose, they were but a moment from it. also not unlike them in the sense that they are stiff-necked. They're reluctant to obey. Difficult. Difficult for them to be instructed by the Lord in the direction they should go. It it was this phrase of stiff-necked people that that led to the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. It was the insult that he chose to lob at the religious leaders in his final sermon before his death. Stephen was preaching about the testimony of the Old Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke a lot about Moses. There's some more homework. Acts 7. Go read Peter, uh, Stephen's sermon. At the end of his sermon, he, he speaks to those in his presence. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received... The law is delivered by angels and did not keep. So he's saying that the wicked religious people who put Jesus to death were the spiritual descendants of the Israelites who demanded the golden calf. They were stiff-necked people who refused to follow God. Are you? Are you stiff-necked? Do you prefer your own way? over the instructions of God and his word and through the preaching of it. I told you at the beginning I wanted, I needed you to think about sin. I didn't want you to think about sin and we've gotten to the point where I think you can know why. Doesn't it feel horrible? I hope that you can see in your own heart the tendency to these things. The tendency to quickly turn aside the the tendency to be reluctant to obey. These are the natural outworkings of your original sin. And even in Christians, no matter how old or mature by God's grace you have become, even in Christians, this nature lingers. So that the apostle, the apostle Paul, can write in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. You tell me if this is not your experience, Christian. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He says a sentence later, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, here it is, evil lies close at hand. Is this not your experience, beloved, of the Christian life? That we live in a world where there is temptation and where there, there is an enemy, and yet we exist here with that remaining corruption so that when we find a desire to do what is right, still evil lies close at hand.
And do you see how heinous in the sight of God sin is? Do, do you see how much he detests rebellion? He, he, he says he will... He treats them like they're not his own anymore. He threatens to, to consume them and be done with them and start afresh. He speaks so clearly about what your sin and mine deserve there in verse 10. Therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Do not disconnect from the passage. Do not disconnect from the, the distance at which this event lies. The, the, the time between this event and today does not remove the necessity of God's anger and justice against sin. And his anger and justice are right and good. Each and every one of us deserves to suffer God's hot, burning wrath. It is right and good that each one of us should be consumed by the Lord for our rebellion against him. All of the sin that you have committed deserves to be punished by God and that for an eternity. All of your sin deserves to die and you to suffer for your unbelief and your hatred. All of our anger and our adultery, our coldness and our apathy and our dullness and our impatience with God. All of the times that we provoke our children to wrath and all of the times that we are short with our spouses, all of our greed and our wasted time and our broken Sabbaths and all of our dishonesty, all of our idolatry deserves to die and that forever. For your sin against the true and living God you deserve both his wrath and curse in this life and in the one to come. But for Christ. You deserve to die. And this is why we praise the Lord. This is why we worship. Christ died in your place. It is happy news, if you've ever heard it. It is happy news that Jesus died for you. All of the burning wrath, all of the consummation that God would pour out on these people if it weren't for Moses' intercession, which we get to at some point. All of it, for each one of you who would trust in Christ by faith believing, all of it has been met in Jesus on his cross. And it's even better. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. You know, there are a lot of things that we need to remember about God. Do you remember that he does not remember your sin? Sinclair Ferguson has a new podcast called Unseen Things. Five days a week, five or eight minutes each day. And this week he's been meditating on this thought that we need to remember 
Many things that we tend to forget. We talked about the Lord's Day one day. Talked about some other things throughout the week. And on Friday, he, he, he encouraged us to remember that there is one thing God does not remember, and it is the sin of his people because it has been dealt with. It's like Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you know that if you start going west, you'll continue going west and continue going west, and you never start going east. This is why you have to use east and west in Psalm 103, because if you start going north, eventually you'll start going south again, right? As far as the east is from the west, so far, beloved, has he removed your transgressions from you. So far, you're a sinner and you deserve to die. And if you had trusted in the one who has died for you, you can live, as Ferguson says, a a paralysis-free Christian life. We are not burdened by our sin, but rather we can live in freedom because Christ was burdened by our sin. He died for us so that we might not have to die. And the greatest news is that he is alive again, ruling and reigning at his throne, and he smiles on you and strengthens you and walks with you in all of the difficulties of life. And when you sin, he wants you to come near and draw near and remember these truths of the gospel. So may the Lord help us to remember. And may Jesus be praised. Amen. Lord, come now. For the sake of your dear Son, our Savior, and send your Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We have much of it, and it still remains. You have put our sin to death in the death of Christ, and we praise you. So come and stir up our hearts to believe again the good news of the gospel. Give us energy for the week ahead. We ask it that Jesus might be praised and honored and glorified. And so we ask it all for his sake and in his name. Amen.